Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I want to discuss uh, a lot of deep things today uh, relating to to Jacob, Yaakov. Um, everybody knows that Yaakov has another name, which is uh, Israel. So when we're talking about when we're talking about Yaakov, we're talking about all of us. We're talking about the Jewish people. We're talking about the the destiny of the Jewish people. And then also keep in mind that um, Yaakov is the the spiritual culmination of Avraham and Yitzchak. So it's all kind of coming together in a discussion about Yaakov. Um, so with that in mind, we know that uh, we have a Torah concept that all things go by the beginning, which is why Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the, the new year, is so important. There's so much spiritual emphasis put on that because it's sort of like in the beginning is the DNA for what's going to follow. So it's, it's important to get beginnings right. And as Rebbe Nachman of Breslov says so beautifully, that if you, if you reach a point where you just hit a wall and you feel like you can't keep on going, begin again. So in other words, from there you, you hear something very wise, which is that you could say, well, that was my beginning and I kind of blew it. So then what's for the rest of me, since that was already the beginning? But we have this concept that you can actually begin again and you can begin again. So you can make a new beginning. And, and in that new beginning, you can have all of the, all the positive attributes that you're looking to unroll for the future. Okay. So, so the birth of Jacob, the birth of Jacob is going to be extremely important since Jacob is Israel, and we're talking about the, the destiny of the entire world right now, okay? So, so in looking into that, we see something very, very deep, many, many deep things. Um, the first thing that we'll start with is the, the whole notion of the fact that he's born second, right? His twin brother, Esau, who we're going to discuss at length, his twin brother Esav is, is, comes out of the womb first, and yet Yaakov is considered the firstborn. So how do we, how do we understand that? Because normally speaking, whoever comes out of the womb first, that's the firstborn. It's, it's very clear. So how is it that Yaakov is the firstborn? So one thing that you can say is that, well, Yaakov purchased the birthright from Esav, and, and so therefore, you know, technically speaking, even though, even though Esav came out first, okay, but Yaakov purchased that right, so Yaakov is first. Okay, maybe. Yeah, it's, technically, you have something there. But, but there's something much deeper going on. So, so what, what Rashi brings out is that, is that Yaakov was actually the first one who was conceived. And so that's why he's the firstborn. And so Rashi gives us a great visual for us to understand this. Again, what's the question? How could it be that, that Yaakov is the firstborn if Esau comes out first? So we're saying that Yaakov is the first one who was conceived. 
And there are very deep implications for that, and we're going to discuss them in a moment. But let's just get the sort of like the, the, the understanding of the actual moment of birth down first. So what Rashi says is if you take a narrow tube, imagine like a, like a test tube, okay? Like a narrow tube. And you put in one stone in first, and then you put in a second stone in. When you turn it upside down, the one that you put in second comes out first. And the one that you put in first comes out second. So since Yaakov was the first one who was conceived, he came out second. So this is a, a way to understand it. We're just talking about in the here and now. But even in the here and now, you see how he's really the firstborn. Okay. So now let's go, let's go deeper. We have, we have a very, very powerful um, idea. This is, this is one of these um, kind of like life-changing ideas, in my opinion, that if you are able to grasp this and, and see the world this way, then, then your life changes and, and how you see the world changes. You see, our tradition is, is that before God created the world, God envisioned a perfect world. It's a very important idea. And as, as I, I say all the time, because this is such an important teaching to get out to the world, Everyone has the same question, which is, if there's a God, why is the world so messed up? And the answer is because the world's not finished yet. Like an architect who envisions the house before he starts building the house. The architect begins by envisioning the completed house, and then he sets out to build the house. God, before he created the world, envisioned a perfect world, and then he created us to be partners with him in terms of achieving that, in terms of creating that. And that's what we're doing. So you see, the first conception is, is, is the vision of perfection. And so when we say that Yaakov was conceived first, it's not just that in this particular family that we're going to call the Jewish people, that there was this first conceived and we're going to name him Jacob. There's much more going on here because we say Bereshis, right? Bereshis means out of beginnings, right? God created the world. Again, another reminder to us that we can begin again at any moment because every single moment is a new beginning. So, but Bereshis, Rashi brings that Bereshis for the sake of the Reshis and then the Jewish people in another part of the Torah are called Reshis. So for the sake of the Jewish people, the world is created. Now, what does that mean? That might, you might misunderstand that. That might sound extremely exclusive or even arrogant, right? It means that the Jewish people are going to be emissaries, light givers, to understand what it is that we're supposed to be doing in this world. So in other words, we're all God's children. Everyone has a share in the Torah. But nonetheless, we have a leadership role in terms of explaining why is there a world? Why is there an us? What are we supposed to be doing with all of this? So you see that just like God had a perfect world in mind before Breshis, before the moment of creation, so too Yaakov is conceived before Asaph. 
Okay. So what we have here is a, 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 a microcosm, a playing out of the creation of the world with the birth of Yaakov Avinu. Now with this in mind, let's start talking about Esav and the role that Esav plays. So Esav is like a very, very intriguing person. Remember, Yitzchak, who was the parent of Esav and, and Yaakov, Yitzchak wanted to give the blessing to Esav. And it's, it's only because Rivka, their mother, engineered it in a certain way that Yaakov gets the blessing and not Esav. So you say, okay, so then what, what did Yitzchak see in Esav? Because the Torah is basically pretty mad at Esav. <laughs> we, we don't like Esav for so many different reasons. And if you look at the Midrashim, about what Esav wrought during his lifetime, he was a murderer and a rapist and, and just like the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. So why, why all of these, why so negative about Esav? Okay, what, what, what is going on with Esav? So Esav basically represents concealment. He represents concealment. And, and how are we to understand that? Because when Esav is born, it's like a very weird, a very weird thing that happens. He's covered in hair like a grown man. And again, there's so many like um, wild Midrashim that are attached to, to, to Esav and his, his birth moment. One of them is that not only is he covered with hair, but he's, gro- he's born with a beard and molars. Okay, I just came across that teaching. So, I mean, he's really like, kind of like the boogeyman, you know, in terms of, but, but, but let's get to the root of it. Like, let's strip through all of this stuff. What, what is at the root of all of these teachings, okay? The root of it is that Esav comes from the, wor- from, from the word asui, which means made, and, and this is why he's sort of so much the antithesis of Yaakov and so much the antithesis of the Jewish approach to the world. Because the Jewish approach is that we're all unfinished products and we're all growing and meant to grow until literally our last breath in this world. We're never finished. And the last thing that we are is born finished. Anyone who considers themselves born a finished product, like a lot of times you, you have like people who speak like this, hey, this is just me, all right? This is me, this is me. Not Jewish, <laughs> that's not Jewish. You know, it's like, it's like, okay, first of all, congratulations. <laughs> Second of all, do you really think that you can't get better? Because if you think you can't get better, then you don't understand what this world is for. Then you really, you really are out of sync with what is going on in terms of your life and why you were born and what, what is doing in this world. So, so Esav represents two things. One, 
physically and one spiritually. The spiritual idea, and both of them are, are like sort of like not Torah ideas, right? Or even the opposite of Torah ideas. On a spiritual level, it's the idea that you're a completed product. On the physical level, it's also the idea that not just you're a finished product physically, but, but now we're getting a little more macro now, but that the world is a finished product. Do you understand? Asav is coming out and he's representing, because all of the patriarchs and matriarchs are representing spiritual ideas and they're also representing ideas in, in, in the physical realm as well. And, and, and Asav is included in this category. So by coming out fully, fully mature, physically fully mature, his birth is challenging us to think that the world around us is a finished product. And what did we say? The world around us is very much not a finished product. That that's why we were created, to bring the world to perfection. Because if the world is a finished product, then we're in a lot of trouble, right? I'll tell you something. The, Ram, the Ramban in, in, the, in the Middle Ages, and I'm talking about now around the 1200s, okay? 1100s, 1200s, the Catholic Church would arrange debates between rabbis and, and, and priests. And, and almost all the time, the rabbis did not want to engage in these debates at all, and they were forced to engage in them. And it was, it was really, it was like a bad scene because they would like forge documents that they would say were from the Talmud and things like that and make up things and then and then you know the the, the judge was not it was not like a, a jury of our peers it was the king or someone else who like the it, it was it was a kangaroo court already and then and then bad things would follow from these things anyway there's a famous debate that took place where they they forced the Ramban, who's one of our greatest, our greatest sages in all of history, to, to do one of these debates before the king of Argon, okay, which was in, I don't know, Spain or France somewhere. Okay? And one of the points that he made was like, you know, God help us if the Messiah has already come. If this is the world that the Messiah already arrived in, we are in a lot of trouble. And the, the, the king, at the end of the debate, basically, basically said the Ramban won this debate, which was like this epic moment. And I think the language he used was, I'm paraphrasing, was something like this. Never have so many brilliant answers or arguments being given in such an indefensible cause. <laughs> that was his way of awarding victory without awarding victory, since he couldn't do that. And then he gave him something like 500 gold coins after the debate and asked him kindly to leave the country. <laughs> because obviously someone who is making this level of sense was a danger to the establishment and had to leave. So, so Esav being born finished, so to speak, both on a spiritual level, 
considering himself a completed product, and on a physical level, suggesting that the world around us is complete. And that this isn't just an intermediary stage for the later perfection coming to the world. That, that, that is sort of the root of, of, of why there's this sort of negativity to Esav. Okay? Now, let's go deeper still. My son, Mendy, I was very proud of him. He, he raised the following question, which is, he says, you know, Yaakov, and remember, Yaakov is, has another name he's going to get later, Israel, which is all of us, which means that we are him. Okay? So this is, when you're describing the moment of his birth, you're describing us. Okay? And when you're describing his name, you're also describing us. Because one's name is a window into one's soul, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's also a snapshot of what your mission is in this world. Okay? So with that in mind, let's look at the name of Yaakov. Yaakov, and this was my son's insight, and you have to think about this because this is going to kind of be a, a new thought. You, you have to look at things from a different perspective after you hear this which is that Yaakov is named after Esav. And you say, well, wait a second. How is Yaakov named after Esav? Well, what does Yaakov mean? Yaakov is, 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 is the one who's holding on to the heel of Esav. <laughs> That's what Yaakov means. Because when Yaakov was born, he was holding on to Esav's heel. And so when one came out, the other one immediately followed. And I heard an amazing teaching about this, very, very deep. And, and this is with this whole idea of holding on to the heel. We're going to give another explanation in a moment. But one thing that I heard that, that always stayed with me, I don't remember from who, is that it's a sign that as soon as the reign of Esau, which is associated with the Western world, right? What Western civilization is, is sort of the, is the, um, the, the, is the, the antecedent, let's say, or the ancestor of Western civilization is, is Asaph, okay? So that, so that when, when the reign of Asaph ends in this world, Yaakov will immediately follow. In other words, it's not like they're twins born and the first one comes out and then, you know, who knows ever how long the next one comes out. No, no, no. It's one immediately into the other. And with, with that in mind, there's a teaching in Gomorrah Sanhedrin, in Chalik at the end, many teachings that discuss the time of Mashiach. And, and one of the teachings is that, that Mashiach is going to come when people are not expecting it. Just like it's a very unusual idea that Yaakov is holding on to Esav, and that it's immediately following. There's no, it's just like, boom, and then it's all, all of a sudden here. That that's, that that's how it's going to happen. And so I'd like to suggest that you see that, that teaching modeled, that where you don't expect it, you see it modeled in the birth of Yaakov himself. But anyway, let's get back to this other idea. The idea that Yaakov is actually named after Esav. And hopefully you see why. Because if Yaakov's name is the one who's holding on to Esav's heel, well then, 
you see that Yaakov's name is, is, is because of Esav. And not just Esav, because of the heel of Esav. Okay, so that's, now we have to figure out what is a heel in Torah. Okay? Now, by the way, there are ideas that, that um, you know, by the way, the, the heel is the least sensitive part of your body. That's a, just an interesting biological fact about your heel. And it makes sense because when God constructed our bodies, he constructed them with great wisdom. Can you imagine if he put your like eyeball where your heel is? <laughs> First of all, how, what would you see? Second of all, you know, well, you get the idea. I mean, you know, there's great wisdom with the way the body is constructed. And, and one of these sort of like underappreciated things is that God put less sensitivity on the parts that are going to bear the, the greatest weight and the greatest pain, like our heel, for instance. That, that's, that's a gift. That's not just, well, of course you don't go ow, 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 every time you take a, why? But why? <laughs> why, why do we take anything for granted? So, so not only that, but I learned from Rabbi Wolfson that the last generation, and now we're going to start to get deeper again, the last generation, the end of days in Torah has a name. The end of days is called Ikve de Meshiche, which means the heel, technically speaking, it means, it means the end of days, but if you want to get literal about it, it means the heel of Mashiach. Okay, so now we're, we're talking about, oh wow, the end of days. Now, now, there's an illustration that I like to do, and if you're listening to this remotely, you, you have to kind of either do it yourself or just imagine it. So imagine over here is a doorway, okay? And I'm in one room, and I'm about to walk through into another room, right? Or I'll, I'll do it facing this way. Let's say the doorway is over here. I'm about to enter into this other room. Now, look at my foot. What is the last part of my body that's leaving this room? The, the heel. In other words, there's, there's a, just this beautiful logic to the notion that the end of days are referred to as the heel. Right? Because as you're going from one domain, one room in this case, to another room, the last part to leave that domain is the heel. Now, with that in mind, let's, let's go deeper. Yaakov, again, who is all of us, and the birth moment, the beginning, which is the defining moment, and the, his name, which is our name, which is our mission, is born holding on to the heel. He's holding on to the end of days. He's holding on to the idea that this world is not finished yet. Is not finished yet. Remember, Esav represents the illusion that the world is finished. Yaakov is holding on to his heel, which is that this world is not only not finished yet, but that there's another era coming, which is the era of perfection, which was what God had in mind first when he conceived the world, 
just like Yaakov was, was conceived first. So here you have now not just Yaakov holding on to the heel of his brother, right, in the here and now. You've got this notion that the initial conception of perfection of the world, because Yaakov is called the perfect person, Ishtam. No one else gets that name, by the way, in Torah. Yaakov is called perfect. You've got this notion of perfection coming out in the end of days, like holding on to the heel, the end of days, right? Now comes the next era, the era of perfection. Do you understand how in the birth of Yaakov and Esav now, you've got being acted out the entire history of the world? Do you see? Okay. Now, now, listen to this. Yaakov and Esav are twins, which is really interesting because they're not identical twins, but they're twins nonetheless. Now, the word that the Torah uses to describe the fact that they, it says, Vehine Tomim, and behold, they were twins. Tomim is spelled with missing letters. Whenever we have, um, and I'm telling you a Rashi right now, and it's, it's, uh, it, this is chapter 25, verse 24, if you want to look, look up that Rashi. Rashi notices that, you know, there's another famous set of twins in the Torah, and that's the twins that Tamar has, right? And this is the messianic line that, that's coming into the world with, with Tamar and um, the ancestors of, of King David, and that's Peretz and Zerah, okay? And when the Torah spells out the word twins to describe them, it spells the word twins with more letters than are being spelled here. Okay, here it's Tomim. There it's Tomim also, but it includes the letters Aleph and the letters Yud. More letters. And Rashi says the following. He says, you know why they're missing letters here? Because Esav was wicked, therefore there's something missing, and that's reflected in the missing letters describing the fact that they're twins. I mean, you really see the divinity of the Torah here in terms of the precision of how every single word is spelled. Every single letter is accounted for in the Torah. So, again, there are missing letters here. The missing letters are Aleph and Yud. And the reason is because Esav is wicked. That's, that's, that's Rashi's comment. Okay. Now I started thinking about that. And I said, okay, wait a second. The letters that are missing are Aleph and Yud. What, do, what does that say? What does that mean? So I'm just going to tell you what I thought. So... What did we say? Why? We're saying that these letters were missing because Esav is wicked. And why is Esav wicked? What's the root cause of that? Because we're saying that he considered himself a finished product. He's already done. He's done. He's done working on himself. He's done. Okay. Now, it's missing the letters Aleph and Yud. And I thought about it. Aleph and Yud in Hebrew grammar. You ready for this? 
are letters that are placed in front of words when you want to make the grammatical structure of future tense. In other words, if you consider yourself a finished product, what do you need a future tense for? You're already done. Do I need a future? I don't need a future. I'm already done. You're giving me more steps? I don't need the more steps. I'm done. So he's missing the very letters of the future tense, Aleph and Yud, because he doesn't need them. And what does Rashi say? Rashi says he's missing those letters because he's wicked. Precisely because he thinks he's a finished product and he doesn't need the future in order to continue to improve. Okay, so now let's continue to go deeper. Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver says that just like Yaakov has this supernatural quality to him, right? So does Esav. Because Esav is also in the womb at the same time that Yaakov is. And in fact, you see this in the blessing that Yitzchak gives Esav. He says, when you Esav, when, when Yaakov goes up, you're going to go down. And when you go up, Yaakov is going to go down. And not in the sense that it's going to be a historical curiosity or coincidence, but the very ones rising will account for the very others falling. And that that's this kind of antithetical relationship that's taking place between Yaakov and Esav and that it's woven into the fabric of the world. That Esav hates Yaakov. This is brought by, in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, by the way. He's the author of the Zohar. So there's this tension that's in the world. There's this tension that's woven into the fabric of the world. And again, now that we understand that the birth of Yaakov and Esav is describing the entire history of creation, we can understand how, how their feelings are about each other, their destinies are recording, regarding each other, is actually reflecting more widely on what's going on in terms of the, 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 the nature of, of, of creation. So they both have this supernatural quality. So now, you want to hear something interesting? When's the next time the Torah talks about them touching? So they're born touching because, because Yaakov is holding on to the heel of Esav. When's the next time they touch? And you know, their touching is not such simple touching. It's, it's like, it's, you know, there, there's more to it. There's, there's, there's conflict, actually, going on. Well, the next time they touch is actually during this wrestling match that takes place. So there's this escalation in terms of conflict that takes place. And this wrestling match is really interesting because Rashi brings down that the one who Yaakov was actually wrestling with was the angel of Esau. This is the famous Yaakov wrestling with an angel, where he gets the name Israel, by the way. Okay? By the way, Rashi brings down, it says, by the naming of Yaakov, it says, he called him Yaakov. 
So that's sort of like a mysterious pronoun. Who's he? Who's he who named him Yaakov? So Rashi brings down that God named him Yaakov. So this name of Yaakov comes from God. That's what Rashi brings. Okay. So now all of a sudden we've got a wrestling match. Now what did we just say a moment ago? That Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver said that this wrestling match, that, that, or rather this wrestling match, which initially took place in the womb, by the way, there was wrestling going on in the womb. Um, but he's holding on to the heel of Esav there. Now all of a sudden it becomes an actual physical wrestling match between two adults. But, but not between a man and another man. Now it's between a man and an angel, the angel of Esav. So what I'm suggesting here is that just like Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver says that they both have this supernatural quality to them, now you see the supernatural elements of their relationship actually playing out in the world as a man is now wrestling an angel. That's not a normal situation. That's a supernatural situation. Yaakov is injured. His, he, his hip is dislocated. And it says that for all time, that that's a reflection of, of the generations of Jews that will follow that were basically going to be injured by this encounter. But then the sun rises and Yaakov is healed and it says, okay, we're going to be healed. In the end, we'll be healed. But that it's, 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 uh, that damage takes place. So how do you win a supernatural battle? How do you win? How do you win a fight like this? Or, or, or putting it in a more positive way, how does, how does the world reach its destiny of perfection? How, do, how does Yaakov do what Yaakov is supposed to do? So a supernatural war can't be waged with normal means. A supernatural war must be wa- won supernaturally. And so the answer is, that the way the war is won, so to speak, is through the performance of Torah and mitzvahs. Because that is already transforming the world in a way that's beyond. It's beyond, 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 beyond. The light that comes into the world when someone does a mitzvah is they bring creation that much closer to its being finished. And this is, this is how it's done. This is how it's done. Remember, I mentioned it to you. At the time of King David, the way wars were waged was half the army would go into fight and the other half of the army would stay behind and learn Torah. And that was considered, that was considered waging war also. So... So this is what it is. This is what it is. It's, um, you know, there are many ways to look at, at the world. 
I try to emphasize the, the, the sweetness of the world most times, you know? Try to. Because the, the, the world has a lot of sweetness and a lot of beauty in it. But, but there's an aspect to it being a battle as well. And if we lose sight of that aspect of the world, then we, we might be just kind of fooling ourselves. So, so, so this is a vision of the world as a battleground. And, and, but it gets won. And, and the war gets won in the end. And it's, it's very beautiful, actually, the way this relationship with Esav and Yaakov culminates, how it finishes, by the way. Um, after Yaakov gets the brocha, Esav says, I'm going to kill him. And, and Rivka, their mother, hears this and says to Yaakov, you've got to run. You've got to run. You've got to go far away till his anger cools off. And he ends up going away for many, many, many years, something like 22 years, something like this. Um, during that time, all of his children are born. And then he's heading back home finally, thinking, okay, now is the time to head back home. And then angels come to him and say, Esav is waiting for you with 400 soldiers. And this looks like the end. It looks like Esav is going to have his final revenge and he's going to wipe out the entire... In fact, I saw another Midrash, which is that Yaakov tells his grandson, Amalek. Amalek, by the way, was a person. He's not just the arch enemy nation of the Jewish people. He was a person. And he's, he's like the grandson. Maybe he's the great-grandson. I think it's the grandson of, of Esav. And he says to Amalek, I wasn't able to get rid of Yaakov. That's your job now. Can you imagine? So Esav is like, is waiting with 400 soldiers. And that's when the wrestling match takes place the night before this meeting. And, and Yaakov is like worried, by the way. And by the way, if you ever worry in life and you go, where's my faith? How am I worrying? Yaakov worried. <laughs> so you can just, just take comfort in that. But it says something very interesting. It says, Yaakov worried and he was distressed. So you can say, like, wow, he was worried and he was distressed. But, but no, the way I, I understand it is, Yaakov was worried and he was distressed that he was worried. Like, he himself felt bad that he was worried. Like, don't I have more faith? But nonetheless, it says he was worried. So, so now he's about to confront Asaph. Has this whole wrestling match. And this whole wrestling match is so interesting because we have a Torah principle, which is the following. Maisim avos simen labanim, which means the deeds of our fathers are assigned to the children, which in fancy English means that everything that went on with the matriarchs and patriarchs is a microcosm of everything that was going, is, is going to come later. Right? So... So when you see Yaakov win this wrestling match, basically what, what, you're, what we are to understand is that we are victorious in the end. Or let me put it another way, which is a little more challenging and interesting, which is the war is already won. 
Now we have to go out and win the war. That's, that's the strange thing. It's like, it's won, but now we have to win it. So it's still a story in progress, even though the end of the story has already been told to us. Okay, so now he faces his brother. And, and it's the most interesting episode. It's the most interesting episode. He sends him all of these gifts, and then he, just to try to appease him and make sure, and the Torah says that you have to do, before battle, you have to do three things. One, pray. Two, send gifts. Right? Because maybe, like, that will appease the person. Maybe they'll get less mad if you do that. Three, if that doesn't work, go to war. Right? So that's, that's, that's what it is. So he's working this plan. And by the way, it says that um, Rebbe, who was the leader of the Jewish people in the Roman times, which were very, you know, terrible times for the Jewish people in terms of, like, oppression and things like that, said that whenever they would send emissaries to talk to the Caesar, to the Roman government, they would always read this chapter of the Torah first to prepare for, for, for these meetings. Very interesting. So, so, so with each wave of gifts, Yaakov bows down to Esav. And he bows down, I think, eight times. And actually, the, the, the rabbis say, you know what? You bow down too many times, which is interesting. It's interesting. Anyway, by the time that he finally sees him, it says Esav grabbed him and kissed him. And over that word kiss in the Torah, it's very few places in the Torah that you have this, you have dots over each of the letters for the word kiss, which is very unusual, which means that the rabbis are telling you, look very carefully at that word. So what is the kiss of Esav? So now you can learn it that they are reconciled and that there's finally peace between them. You can learn it that way. It's not the main way that it's learned. <laughs> Again, another wild medrash. What does it mean, kiss? That he actually went for Jacob's neck and that he bit his neck to like bite his jugular vein and to kill him. And that there was a miracle and Jacob's neck turned into marble and Esav's teeth crumbled. And now with that in mind, let's go back to the verse in the Torah. It says that Esav kissed him and he cried. And he cried according to this medrash because his teeth crumbled. Let's take another look at what the kiss of Esav is. Kiss of Esav, I think you can compare to the levels of assimilation that are going on in especially America today. You can say further in the world today, where millions of people, millions of Jews, and remember we're like a tiny people, we're like 15 million people approximately. If you're losing millions of people, this is after the Holocaust. I'm talking about right now, if you're losing millions of people, that's statistically, that's, that's a, that's, that's a wipeout. It's a wipeout. 
It's going on right now, by the way. My father used to tell me this. He was always very intrigued by this. I believe the name of the community in China was Kaifeng. Um, during, I'm just approximating here, around the 1700s, maybe 1800s, somewhere around there. There was a Jewish community in China, and they even have like pictures of synagogues that are in the traditional, with pagodas, with the classic Chinese, you know, curved roof structures. Like, you know, like nothing more Chinese than that. And they were synagogues, actually. And they were a bunch of traders. You had like, you know, you had the, 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 the Silk Route where there was trading even into the Far East. And so there was a, a, an active Jewish community there. It completely assimilated. And my father used to love to tell me this, 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 this historical fact. And he, he would say to me, do you know why it completely disappeared, this community? Because there was no anti-Semitism. The, the, the Chinese people embraced the Jews completely, and they all intermarried, and the entire community disappeared. So the kiss of Aesop, what, what is that? You know, we, we're so used to the sword of Aesop. Like that anti-Semitism or, or that, that level of conflict or challenge is, 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 is manifest through persecution. But there's another side to it. You know, a person can be suffocated with cashmere. Kind of a odd image, being suffocated with cashmere. But, but a person can equally be killed with cashmere. The, the, the luxury, the luxury and the thorough acceptance that a lot of times that we receive here now causes more evaporation than persecution. Because sometimes you have the idea of script anti-script, it's called. You say, do this. Well, if you're ordering me to do this, you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to do that. Don't tell me what to do. I'll do what I want to do. Now imagine someone says, you want to do this, do this. You don't want to do this, don't do that. Do whatever you like. Okay, what are you doing? (laughs) I'll do that. In other words, once the script-anti-script dynamic gets thrown out the window... All of a sudden, it's like, so what am I fighting you for? You're friends, I'm friends, it's whatever. What are you doing? I'll do what you're doing. There's more of you anyway. Why not? So, do you know the only way to, to battle this? Effectively, it's, it's simcha, joy, pride, and sense of mission. So just wrap it up and just tell you something. I heard it from Rabbi Freeman first. He's, he said like this, you know, if you were to ask Avram and Sarah why they're the first Jews, right? Why they're Jewish, they're not going to tell you because 
because their parents were Jewish, because their parents weren't Jewish. Like if you go up to like the average person on the street and say, why are you Jewish? They'll tell you, well, because when I was born, it was tag you're it because my mom was Jewish, right? So my grandma was Jewish, whatever. So now I have to be Jewish. That's kind of just what it is. But that wasn't the case with the first Jews, Avraham and Sarah, and they're the ones who have the whole Jewish program. So in other words, here's the point. The first Jews weren't looking backwards with regard to their own Judaism. They were looking forward. They were understanding that the mitzvahs, that the Jewish vision was a future-based mission. And then it was about the transformation of this world and the perfection of this world. And, and that's the message, that's the only thing, really, I think, that really can save us is, is the notion that we are not just, you know, have like ropes slung across our shoulders and we're pulling 3,000 years of tragedy from the past into the present and that's our holy job. Who wants to do that? I don't want to do that. But if you're telling me that there's still a job for me to do and that the work isn't done yet and that all the previous generations are counting on me and on us to finish the job that they gave their lives for, then, yeah, what do I have to do? What is it? Tefillin, keep Shabbos, light candles, give tzedakah, be nice to each other, love each other. Tell me what to do. I want to be part of that. I want to do that. Okay. The following are questions and answers. Um, hopefully I have this right. Also at Abraham's funeral, doesn't Asaph's head get kicked into the cave with somebody's foot? Okay, so that, that's an interesting episode. That's by Yaakov's burial. And Yaakov, and, and Asaph till the end is protesting that, that, ya- that Yaakov gets that burial plot inside the cave of the patriarchs. Okay? And so when they're going to bury Yaakov, and remember, the Zohar says that, the, that burial place, Mor Samach Pelah, where Adam and Eve are buried, and, and Abraham and Sarah are buried, and Yitzchak and Rivka are buried, and, and Leah is buried, and now you've got Yaakov being buried there too. So, so that's the entrance to the Garden of Eden. That's what the Zohar says, where heaven and earth kiss. So right as they're about to bring Yaakov in, and he's just his, his, his coffin is surrounded with something like 32 crowns of the different Canaanite kings who have all placed it on it as during this funeral procession. They've taken their crowns off their heads and they put it on Yaakov's coffin. Okay, as they're bringing that in, Esav appears at the opening of the cave and he's like, this is my burial spot. This belongs to me. Now, Yaakov had a grandson named Hushim. Now, Hushim was a son of the tribe of Dan. Dan. And Hushim was deaf. And it says that he sees them trying to block Yaakov's burial. 
and he's deaf and he doesn't know who this guy is or what he's saying. And so he takes a stick and he knocks his head off and his head rolls into the cave. Now, the Benish Chai points out that if you rearrange the letters of Chushim, it spells Mashiach. Amazing, amazing teaching. And so, um, and so they say, well, what was Esav's merit that he, he got his head in, you know, because he got his head in at least. I mean, it's not great, but it's, it's a level for sure. And they say because he did the mitzvah of honoring his parents. And that not only did he do the mitzvah of honoring his parents, but he was like, like the, one of, maybe the best parent to honor that ever lived. He wasn't like just, he just did it. He really did it. He really did it. And so for that, he got part of himself into that place. And, and, but his body, you know, his body like was kind of running all over the place. Now remember, we, we raised this point earlier. Let me just finish it up. Why did Yitzhak want to give Esav the, the blessing? So, so there's, there's one opinion that, 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 that Esav really was the ideal person in potential because he was out in the field and he was so proactive. He was like a, a superman, actually. And if he could have just married that with spirituality, he would have been like the, the most realized person ever. Right? So, so he had tremendous, tremendous, tremendous potential. And he even did a lot of good things. But in the end, he didn't go out so well, right? And, and, and what is the greatest guarantee that we won't fall into that trap? Again, by not considering ourselves a finished product. Right? You know, I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Baal Shem Tov. It's a Let's see if I can say over the whole teaching. He says, who, who's the worst of this group? The bad person who thinks that he's bad? The good person who thinks that he's bad? The bad person who thinks that he's good? Or the good person who thinks that he's good? And the answer is, you know who the worst is? The good person who thinks that he's good, there's no hope for him. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, that's the end of that teaching. <laughs> It's the end of that teaching. So, 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 again, it's it's a dialectic, right? You, meaning that you have to balance you have to balance two opposites. What are the two opposites? One opposite is God loves me. God loves me to pieces. I've got a soul within me that's pure, right? If I do anything wrong, if I do anything wrong in my life. Ultimately, it's not a true reflection of my soul. It's just extrinsic, as they say. It can fall off. You can do tshuva, it goes away right away. You, you, you believe that God believes in you and everything like that. But all that is true. But not that I'm done. Not that I'm finished. And that I'm just on automatic pilot now. That, that, that's the thing. And that, I have, and, that, and that that actually is the headline. And, and that that's what's got to drive me. That's what's got to motivate me. The other stuff can motivate you too. Like, especially when you get down, you've got to pick yourself up and say all the proper things to yourself. I know I always think of my dad. When, when my dad lost my mom, I said one time, Dad, how are you doing? And he said to me, you know, I'm a psychologist, so I know all the right things to say to myself. 
right? So, you know, the truth is, anytime we get down, we have to be our own psychologists on some level. We have to know the, the right things to say to ourselves. Very important, very important. When you're down, don't beat yourself up. Because if you think that that's going to motivate you, I mean, it's, I don't I mean, everyone's different, but it, it, it probably won't. And if you think that it will, that's probably the Yetzirah trying to dig you even deeper down into the ground, right? Got to say, you got to, you got to say beautiful things to yourself. You got to say, "I love you, I love you, I believe in you. You can do it. I know you can do it. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. It's going to be good." You have to, you have to say those things to yourself all the time, but not to think of yourself as a finished product. In the podcast, this week, we asked the question: Why does Yitzchak love Esau so much? It's very clear he loves Esau, yeah. and despite what we just discussed. And his answer was that he, that Yitzhak basically was like the first person to have unconditional love for his child because he saw that uh, Abraham sent away Yishmael, that Abraham almost had, you know, killed Yitzhak at the Akeda. And there was an element of him where he wanted to have this unconditional relationship, unconditional love for his son, despite all the issues. And beautiful. It's, sort of, it's a beautiful idea. Yeah. I just wanted to. Yeah, I mean, you know, sure. I mean, that's, uh, I love it. It sounds great. It sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. Just to follow what you said, yeah. it seems like it was, so his, his love for Asa was kind of misdirected because if Asa thought he was already complete, there was, there was no room to be changed. And yet, as despite the fact that Yitzhak wanted to change Asa for the better, he saw his potential, it wasn't, he wasn't able to be, he wasn't able to accomplish that. Well, you know, I read something one time, I, I can't quote the source, but he was, it's a, it was in an op-ed piece in the New York Times, like, I don't know, 40 years ago, something like that. Someone had written a book about his life in, kind of like the, the upper echelons of Washington, D.C., U.S. government service, right? And he had been like in, in I think it was called the OSI. Was that the early CIA? OSS. OSS, yeah. So anyway, he said the following thing, which always stuck with me because I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea, which is that he said, this, this person who was, you know, obviously a very accomplished, you know, very scholarly person, you know, who'd risen to the heights of, you know, U.S. diplomacy. He said, the way to make someone more responsible is to give them more responsibility. Yeah. And I, I've always been very intrigued by that because I think because it, it's a little bit of a risk because if someone isn't at the level that you want them to be of being more responsible, to give them more responsibility, yeah. you know what I mean? You're like, that's something that you need to get done, and now you're entrusting it with someone who obviously you don't feel is f- fully at their peak of being responsible. Or, or maybe you don't make yourself vulnerable in that way. But what, whatever it is, maybe I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm learning it out incorrectly. But... But the idea that if you invest someone with responsibility, you will make them more responsible. And, and I think maybe you can apply that to Esav. That, that I think maybe Yitzchak was thinking on some level, perhaps, 
that if he gives him, if he shows him the seriousness of who he is and what needs to be done, and he makes him responsible for that, Asa will actually rise to the level of the challenge. Now, I'll tell you something else to support this idea, okay? And this is, a, this is from, 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 from the Medrash, right? And Rashi brings this, which is that during that epic encounter where Esav is there with the 400 soldiers and now the family of Yaakov is coming and they're like sitting ducks. They're sitting ducks. They can absolutely be wiped out in the moment, okay? Like everything is on the line over here. It says that Yaakov put uh, his daughter Dina in a box, meaning to say that he sealed her off from view. Okay, it wasn't, God forbid, an uncomfortable kind of thing. He just sealed her off from view because he didn't want Asaf to sear. Because he thought if Asaf's going to sear, then she's going to be in danger. Right? And believe it or not, believe it or not, the rabbis say that had they gotten married, right? that she would have turned Esav around. Really? Wow. Can you believe it? Like, everything that we've learned about Esav, right? Can you believe it? That she would have turned Esav around. And there you see that, at least from that opinion, that the rabbis really felt that Esav did have it in him to turn around. And maybe this was Yaakov's idea, that if he invested him with more responsibility... That Esav would have risen to the occasion. Isaac's idea. Um, that Isaac's idea. That that had that that had Isaac given him the blessing, Esav would have risen to the level of. Okay, of so um, one more awesome thing from from Lexi. She just pointed out something incredible, which is we said that the in the twins, that um, that the letters Yud and Aleph are missing. Um, we also said that, uh, that, that Yaakov takes on a whole new job. He takes on the job of, of Esav. And when Yaakov gets his new name, which is during this wrestling match with the, the, the angel of Esav, he becomes Yisrael. Yisrael contains the letters Yud and Aleph. Unbelievable. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.